Hey guys, this is the Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and if you're listening to the show, you're no doubt familiar with Human Action, Ludwig von Mises' masterpiece. This is the 75th anniversary of its publication, and in honor of that, we are holding a very special event on May 16th through the 18th, a conference dedicated to this very important book. We're going to have scholars from all around the world coming in, including Bob Murphy, Guido Holzman, Joe Salerno, Tom DeLorenzo, a whole list of all-star Austrian scholars. Now, as a Radio Rothbard listener, we've got a special opportunity for you. If you go to Mises.org slash raffle, that's double R, raffle, uh, you can enter in to get a free admission to this very special conference. Also, if you're a student, we've got scholarships available for you at the event site, uh, Mises.org slash events. So I hope to see you guys there, and now enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin with the Mises Institute, and with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. And we've also got Jonathan Newman, one of our fellows, our economists here at the Mises Institute, and uh, we've got him on. We've got a slightly lighter fare, at least at the front end of today's episode. Uh, we're going to talk about the article at the Babylon Bee, talking about how uh, Selena Gomez shocked Taylor Swift with her, her uh, news about just how insightful Austrian business cycle theory is. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll just use that uh, as, I think, some, uh, just a helpful recap of how Austrian business cycle theory works, because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding out there about uh, just some of the details. Now, being Radio Rothbard, we're going to try and do this in an uh, explanation for, for educated, for uh, intelligent lay people who may not have studied formally any econ, but we'll just kind of go back and, okay, what are, what are the basics of Austrian business cycle theory? And this article uh, in Babylon B actually does a pretty decent job of summing it up. And, uh, and then we'll just go from there and talk about some related issues. And maybe, uh, you know, every, we, every few weeks here on um, Radio Rothbard these days is basically kind of a recession watch uh, situation. <laughs> where we're like, OK, well, what does the bad news tell us currently? Uh, and so we'll get into a little bit of that. But Jonathan, why don't you just start off by uh, telling us about this article and how it described Austrian business cycle theory? It, it was a great article. I, I love the Babylon Bee guys, and uh, and and so I, I I don't know what I expected when I when I opened up this article, but it it was just a perfect description of an, a very nice summary of austrian business cycle theory and of course they're they're making use of the the meme that was trending or maybe it's it still is of a uh, selena gomez you know leaning into uh, taylor swift and whispering something that's apparently shocking to taylor swift because you know her mouth like her jaw drops and and so they they make use of that uh, that little moment uh, and everybody was making memes about it but in their telling of that moment, they're, they're saying that uh, Gomez was explaining Austrian business cycle theory to Taylor Swift. And it's it's just great. I pulled out some quotes. Um, of course, like the way they did it was it was a it was a dialogue between uh, Gomez and Swift. And so Gomez was telling uh, Selena Gomez was telling Taylor Swift 
uh, here's a quote from the article. The Federal Reserve causes the boom and bust business cycle through the central banking system's manipulation of interest rates and fiat currency. Inflation is defined by Ludwig von Mises. So we got a, we got a, <laughs> a, a reference to Mises here is actually the increase in the supply of money and not the resultant increase in prices. When central banks inflate the currency, they artificially stimulate economic activity, creating malinvestments. And that and at, at that point, I was like, I was I was extremely happy because they actually get the malinvestment part in there. In a lot of uh, a lot of summaries of Austrian business cycle theory, uh, they might refer to some dislocations, but oftentimes, like the way they describe it is is an overinvestment theory where the 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 central bank has increased the supply of credit, and this just causes too much investment. And of course, Mises argued against that uh, at great length in in many of his works. So the fact that they got the the malinvestment word um, is is to be celebrated. But but then the the story continues, and I think this is the point where Swift is is responding to Gomez. So that is the bubble that has to pop at some point, and the Federal Reserve tries to keep the charade going as long as they can with low interest rates and cheap credit. Interest rates should be set by the amount of real savings in the economy <laughs> to signal to borrowers and producers of capital goods that consumers have lower time preference, preferring to spend their money on goods and services later. So that's just perfect. So like, the, I mean, this, this demonstrates a very clear understanding of Austrian business cycle theory, that there's something funky going on in credit markets that's that's causing uh, the interest rates to be pushed artificially low and it causes uh, producers to make malinvestments it causes overconsumption um, and also they have a clear picture of what what would cause sustainable economic growth which which would be the case in which real savings are being channeled into a productive enterprise. So, and they continue uh, preferring to, to spend their money on goods and services later. When the real savings are shown to not be there to justify all this activity, all those new industries and consumer products will collapse. I mean, it's it's just another perfect line because the <laughs> the essential problem in the business cycle story is the fact that we don't have enough capital goods to get through all of, all of the projects that were started during the boom. So there's there's this artificial boom that's triggered by low interest rates, and the low interest rates could come through uh, Federal Reserve manipulation or through fractional reserve banking. There can be a credit expansion there. Um, and so a bunch of new projects are started that have long time horizons that uh, require the use of a, a bunch of new capital goods. Um, but and they they hit this point here that the real savings aren't there to complete all of those projects. So so like across the board here, they just they get an A plus. They I mean this is just a perfect description of Austrian business cycle theory. And then and then finally at the at the end they uh, they mentioned Mises and Hayek again. They say uh, Mises wrote all about this in his 1912 theory on money and credit. And Friedrich Hayek won a Nobel Prize in economics in 1974 after advancing the so-called Austrian business cycle theory. I mean, at that point, I, it was just a standing ovation for me. So, so great job, Babylon B. That, that was that was excellent work. Well, you also know that they mentioned the Mises Institute at the end of the article. Oh, that's that's right. Yeah, we uh, we got a shout out. So, um, what what did they say? It was. Uh, it said something um, about how she was uh, drawing hearts, how Taylor Swift had taken to drawing hearts in her journal, her new journal from the Mises. <laughs> that her new song was going to be about breaking up with Keynesian theory. 
Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's great. And uh, I, I guess I can reveal that. I mean, we have we have private communications here at the Institute. And so we were sharing this and everybody was everybody was just excited to see it. Um, and I think at, at some point somebody suggested that uh, Joe Salerno invites Selena Gomez to be a, a speaker at the next Mises <laughs> University. And so, I mean, if she if she can describe uh, business cycle theory like this, she can certainly she can certainly take my uh, business cycle lecture <laughs> this year. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could uh, Photoshop her uh, into uh, <laughs> a picture with our podium and background. Uh, no problem. Though, back before he was canceled, you did, just as a joke, a picture of Kanye speaking at the Mises Institute. <laughs> and uh, and uh, several people thought it was, it seemed plausible. Um, but that was back before, uh, you know, his shoes were taken <laughs> off the market and he was declared evil and all of that stuff. So, uh, I still think uh, uh, David Gordon is a big fan of his work, though, just uh, to okay. put it <laughs> Does he have any books? I don't know if he's written a book. David could review it. Uh, maybe a paper for ARC. <laughs> well, I mean, I liked this article too because, yeah, some of these phrases were like they were worded in a way that I used to teach business cycle theory because we had like one lecture on business cycle theory when I taught the polit politics, intro to politics um, at uh, Arapo Community College back in the day. Um, because I always thought it was really stupid how you had these thick textbooks on the American or on political systems in general, and central banks got maybe half a page in 600 pages mm -hmm. or something, which was just the stupidest thing imaginable. Um, so I always felt like, okay, this requires some actual attention to the role of central banks in, there was always a huge section on fiscal policy, taxes, spending, all of that. No, barely any mention of central banks. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we would talk about the business cycle a little bit to give them an idea of how central banks worked and all of that. And uh, this, I mean, the way that they phrase like the role of interest rates, for example, and sending signals and such, um, I think just very, in very interesting and also key in helping people understand why do interest rates even matter, right? Is because, well, it, it's, it tells you, it gives you some sense of how much available funds there are. Mm -hmm. in the economy in terms of savings and investment. And uh, if, if it's 1%, then, oh, gee, banks must be flush cash. And we must all save that turns out true because it's an artificially suppressed rate. And so, so many of those issues out there, I mean, I, I, I think you encounter a lot of people like, oh, yeah, I, I'm into Austrian economics and uh, I'm into Austrian cycle business theory, but it's, it's not that easy to understand unless you have someone to explain it to you pretty well. We try and do that, of course, here at the Mises Institute, but that does require some real engagement by the reader and, and such to, to understand it. And so uh, somebody at the B, yeah, went through that trouble, I think, to, to get this information. Now, uh, my one quibble, and maybe you can answer this, where it says, well, when central banks cause inflation, when they inflate the money supply, Often when I say something like that, because that's shorthand essentially, but mm -hmm. people will say, well, what about the role that commercial banks have in inflating the money supply? We should probably note the role of commercial banks that it's not that just in certain conditions, the Fed does directly inflate the money supply, like when it buys a bunch of assets, which it has been doing for the last 15 years. But commercial banks also have a role in this, do they, do they not? 
Oh, yes, yes. So uh, like, like I mentioned, when I was going through, uh, you can get a credit expansion in, in those two main ways. So you, you can have it by the, the Federal Reserve is expanding their balance sheet, they're expanding their purchases. And so there's new money that's being channeled into the economy through credit markets that way. So that, that represents a credit expansion. But you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, probably the, at least throughout history, the, the main way that credit has been expanded uh, has been through bank credit expansion, where they are, um, where they're engaged in fractional reserve banking. So they have a a certain um, amount of deposits that come in, and then they they make loans to people uh, in excess of those deposits. And so there's another mismatch between um, the savings that have been provided by people and uh, what what amount of credit is being offered by the banking system. And, and you get all of these uh, mechanisms like the, the money multiplier in which like, it's not just like a one-to-one -one sort of thing where one person takes their loan and deposits it in another bank and that bank keeps only a fraction of it and expands their loans on top of that deposit. And so you get this, you get this widespread increasing credit and it's all just based on the functioning of a fractional reserve banking system um, you don't even need to have a central bank to, to uh, for that to happen although um, of course like austrian economists like uh, mises and rothbard they they talked about uh, certain ways that bank competition might limit that so like if 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 banks are are freely competing with each other so they're not they're not in a cartelized system like we have with the federal reserve then they have these incentives to call on each other's deposits or to go redeem each other's deposits to try to put each other out of business and so those those sorts of mechanisms uh, might limit the amount of credit expansion if you had free banking uh, but of course uh, as we saw throughout the 20th century um, in, in 1913 the there was this great temptation that are, are for the banking system to come together, to, to be monopolized, to be cartelized so that they can expand at the same rate so that they wouldn't have these competitive pressures to, to put each other out of business by redeeming their deposits of one another. Um, and that way they could all expand credit together. They could all reap the benefits of credit expansion. Uh, and then they could offload the costs of insolvency to the general public. So if, if you have a lender of last resort in the form of a central bank, it means that you you can get you can get all the benefits. You can earn the interest on all these new loans that you're creating on top of deposits. But then, if there's ever any sort of bank run, there's ever any sort of instability in the financial system, we can just call up our friends at the Fed to bail us out. Um, and and also, what the Fed does by by instituting rules about how mu how much banks can expand also makes sure that it's all evenly done, proportionally done. Um, so it's it's been it's a it's a big swindle is what it is. It's uh, the banks they get all these benefits and and all of the costs are outsourced to everyone else. I think that's an important point too about how the extent and magnitude of monetary inflation through the commercial banks would not be what it is without the backstop of the central bank. Uh, we ran last week um, a three part series by Rothbard on Mises.org. Uh, this was an old 1995 lengthy article he did. The second part of it was on fractional reserve banking. And yes, he makes exactly that point, which is, yes, there's going to be fractional reserve banking in a truly free market. Banks, Some banks will do it. It will be limited, though, by competition and the, fa and the fact that these banks will danger their insolvency by 
engaging in fractional reserve banking. However, the presence of the central bank makes that possible in the longer term and greatly increases the magnitude of it. Uh, mm -hmm. So. I guess the, t the takeaway, the point is that I'm making, yeah, both banks and the central bank itself have a role in inflating the money supply. Uh, and then that leads to all these other issues mentioned in the B article. And of course, you in numerous writings about, for example, the issue of malinvestment versus overinvestment uh, and how the bubbles pop because there's all these imbalances in the economy where you don't have the savings you thought you had. People have made all these commitments um, in terms of new investments, new purchases um, that there's not the the proper foundation for. So there's yeah. This is all just I, I just I, go sorry. Ahead. I just want to mention I'm I'm so glad that you published those uh, uh, Rothbard articles on the Mises Wire. I don't I don't think I knew about those before you you put them on the wire, and they're they're just great. A, a lot of the content is the same as what's in uh, Case Against the Fed and. and uh, uh, what has government uh, done to our money? But it's it's much more bite size. It's uh, it's easy. There's no graphs. There's no bank balance sheets in there. So I mean, it's very easily digestible. Um, and of course, Rothbard always has a very uh, very clear style. And so I I, I would I'm glad that uh, I know about those articles now because I can point people in that direction. Yeah, the I was in fact searching for something along those lines, and I uh, I found a chapter that I thought would work in the case against the Fed or what has government done to our money, but you turn the page and there is that bank balance sheet, that yep. chart <laughs> with the numbers. And you're like, oh no, people aren't going to want to read this. So, um, so let's let's then go to an a to to illustrate one of the mistakes that people make about Austrian business cycle theory. You link in your article about the B article uh, to a Krugman article from a few years ago. And I remember when this came out, he calls it his hangover theory of the economy. And this is one of those weird twists uh, on Austrian business cycle theory um, where it's, it's like it kind of sounds like Austrian business cycle theory, but it's not. And it's wrong. Maybe you can mm -hmm. kind of maybe you can kind of describe a little bit for us. Yeah, I I mean he 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 talks in sort of vague terms, uh, but like un underneath all the vague terms, it's it's essentially a, a hydraulic view of the economy where uh, where there's like maybe not not enough investment spending, but then there's too much investment spending that's caused by central bank actions, uh, and, and so it. To him, when he's when he's looking at the uh, the numbers, it, it, based on that hydraulic view, it just doesn't match up. Uh, like it, it doesn't make sense to him why there has to be this prolonged slump after after like like what could be the problem with too much investment? What could be the problem with a, a bunch of business activity? It doesn't make sense why we would have to have this period where there's uh, where there's less business activity, where there's where we have this recession uh, if the if we were just coming out of a period where there where there is a bunch of business activity, so it just doesn't compute for him in, in his sort of Keynesian framework that he's thinking about it. Um, by the way, on that, uh, I remember Joseph Salerno uh, mentioned a a an interesting line of research, and it's something that I've just started to look into. It's it's uh, it's trying to, or it's all the errors that come out of trying to figure out business cycles just by looking at data. So, like, if you're just looking at 
numbers going up and down, and then you try to come up with a business cycle theory based on that, it's going to be insufficient. And and of course, I mean, the reason is obvious. It's it's because the business cycle is based on the use or the the insufficiency of available resources. And like you, there's not there's not easy numbers to find for for that fact. Like the the fact that we just don't have enough capital goods available to complete all the projects that are started during an artificial boom. So so what that means is if you're just looking at past data, you're going to come to these conclusions based on like the like like I said a hydraulic view of the economy where like this number goes up and that causes this number to go up and the combination of those two things causes, you know, this this valve to get released, which causes this, you know, tub to get drained. Oh, like all, all of that sort of view, it, it's going to be missing the point because what what's what what the economy is made up of is a bunch of complex lines of production where there are specific capital goods being used, and all of it has to line up in in precise fashion for us to get all the consumption goods that we want. Um, and so, if you're looking at just those big aggregate numbers, you're going to come to incorrect conclusions. But uh, what's interesting about the the hangover characterization is that I, I do think that it's it's an okay analogy. Like if you actually understand the mechanics of of uh, Austrian business cycle theory, I think I think it's fine to 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 compare it to an, an analogy. And I think the the best example of that, since we're talking about humorous uh, summaries of Austrian business cycle theory, is the Keynes versus Hayek rap battle. Uh, the fear, the boom, and the bust, in which they act, they actually make use of the hangover analogy, um, e- even in like picture form. Like you see, Keynes wake up in the in the hotel, and he's got this terrible hangover, <laughs> and his his solution to his hangover is he reaches over to his nightstand, and there's uh, the bottle of liquor is there, <laughs> which is just, I mean, is a perfect uh, perfect uh, characterization of of Keynesian policies that we used. We used expansionary fiscal and monetary policy, and that got us into this mess. And so now that we're in this mess, what sh- what should we do? How can we fix this problem? And of course, the Keynesian solution is more expansionary fiscal and monetary policy. So so the the hangover picture, I think, is okay. But of course, the the way Krugman is trying to adapt it is is incorrect. I think it comes dangerously close to just sort of this: what goes up must come down sort of mm-hmm. idea. And that is definitely not what Austrian business cycle theory is. In fact, you could have the economy going up, 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 so long as it's not artificially inflated. You don't have artificial credit expansion. Something structural occurred in the economy that really increased productivity and investment. You could have a you could have a change in the trend where the economy just started increasing at a faster pace than it had been for the previous hundred years. That would not necessarily mean there was a bubble. And yep. so just because you've got a change going on and, and maybe things accelerated, that doesn't necessarily mean bubble. You have to go back to the foundational issues of monetary expansion, credit expansion, that's that sort of thing. And by the way, I do invo- endorse that video also okay <laughs> i, I use that as a teacher because i thought yep because yep. it had all that stuff about coordinating time and interest and and just mm-hmm. all <laughs> described in a fun interesting way so yeah we'll put that in the link in the description if you've never seen it uh it, it's worth watching it's like i don't course, know five yeah. minutes of course our own joe salerno starred as Louis von mises in the the follow-up oh, that's the second, right the second yeah. one i always he wish did? we had that sweater he had kind of hung up in the institute somewhere <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, he, he's he's in the boxing ring, and he's he's the, like the mentor, the coach for Hayek. Uh, but he's playing the role of Mises, and so he's got Mises across uh, across the back. I, I always speaking of memes, since we're talking about memes, I, I always sort of feel like that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio meme where it's like he jumps up and, and points at the TV because something surprising is happening. I always do that. It's like, oh, look, there's Joe Salerno. There he is right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let's, as long as we're talking about uh, Krugman, let's just finish up with a couple of issues. Here's the portion of the episode that talks about where in the business cycle are we? Uh, normally when I have Thornton on, I ask him always that question. Um, but I haven't had you on for six weeks, so now let's ask you. Uh, what <laughs> what has changed uh, in, in the business cycle? Now, I've written a couple of recent articles uh, on, boy, let's just look at a variety of issues, right? The Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index. The worst, if you take out uh, the COVID collapse. It's the worst you, we've seen in uh, decades since I believe the dot-com days. No, no, since the Great Recession. And let's see some of these other issues. Oh, I mean, the employment situation. The latest report was mostly bad news. The It was mostly part-time jobs that were created with a significant fall in full-time jobs. Temp services are in the gutter which generally precedes uh, a recession. And we can just look at a variety of these indicators. And you've helpfully added a couple of new articles saying, hey, look, Krugman's really good at ignoring anything that contradicts his narrative <laughs> um, and, and focuses on a few things and then says that Republicans are just meanies and they're obsessed with this idea of a bad economy baselessly. Uh, so just to highlight a couple of your more recent contributions on this, I mean, what, what should we look, look for? So, yeah, uh, Krugman is, uh, he is just obsessed with declaring victory. And, and the reason he wants to do that is, is because he has long been saying that, uh, we, the economy is doing great. Inflation is coming down. Um, unemployment is just, is just fine. Uh, the economy is doing great. Um, and the reason he wants to declare victory is obviously it, for political reasons, because he wants to credit the Biden administration um, and the establishment at the at the central bank for um, for successfully navigating this this entire complex economy towards a soft landing. Uh, but the reason he's trying to declare victory now is because I, I do think that in the back of his mind, at least somewhere deep in the back of his mind, uh, I think Krugman is anticipating a recession sometime soon. Uh, I, I'm not sure what his own timing, but I I wouldn't be surprised if he's thinking that there's going to be one this year. Um, and so he wants to be able to declare victory now, and that way, when when the recession comes, he can he can blame it on on they kept interest rates too high for too long. They didn't follow my advice. They didn't cut interest rates when they needed to. Uh, and in fact, Krugman says that uh, they didn't even need to raise rates as high as they did. In his view and other economists, 
um, the the inflation would have come down on its own. Like the central bank didn't need to act in the way that it did. So so he need, he has like this. He's trying to plan an escape route. So if a recession comes, he's got this sort of rhetorical ploy that he can use to say, "See, I was right all along." Um, well, let's uh, yeah, but, let's let's go a little bit more in depth on that issue because yes, that's been like a pet peeve of mine. Is and this also illustrates one of the key important issues behind understanding Austrian business cycle theory and what is our task as the Mises Institute, I think, is, boy, we have just got to help people understand the role that monetary inflation, how the business, what role it has, as well as how the business cycle theory works, because it's not just Krugman. I've noticed so many like Wall Street analysts and people and financial Twitter saying, well, if there's a recession, it's going to be because of a policy error by the Federal Reserve. And that, I mean, that's what Krugman's essentially saying. I don't know if he uses that phrase, but that's what they're referring to is, oh, they 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 jacked up interest rates. They didn't actually increase interest rates. What is they allowed interest rates to increase mm -hmm. too far. Um, they, they were too tight on the money supply. So they committed a policy error and that's what causes the recession now. Since they are ignoring Austrian business cycle theory, they don't understand that the policy error occurred in like 2009 and started yep. with that big monetary inflation, all of the bailouts, the huge asset purchases by the Fed, all of this extra money sloshing around that set the stage for the current, which would have been a recession in 2020 or 2021, even without COVID. Um, but that got staved off by $6 trillion created and flooded into the economy. So now we're back again, except now with even more inflation, and this this all can be traced into what has been going on since 2009. And yet we're still hearing from Krugman and from countless intelligent people in the financial sector and a lot of them economists that the real policy error is occurring right now and that what yeah. happened 10, 15 years ago doesn't even matter. And uh, you can only come to that conclusion if you're just ignoring, I think, the larger issues of decent business cycle theory. I think I think it all goes back to Bastiat. So uh, Bastiat's main lesson in that which is seen and that which is not seen is a good economist has to uh, look look beyond what is merely visible. Uh, you, have to, you have to consider the long run consequences. You have to consider the consequences on all groups, not just on one group. And I think like one particular flavor of this sort of error is exactly what you're talking about. It's 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 extreme short sightedness. It's that if there's any sort of recession in 2024, that must be because of a policy error that occurred in 2024. So like it's just whatever precipitated the recession or, or if there's a financial crisis, whatever precipitates that financial crisis, that's what the error was. There's no conception of like a buildup of errors or a, a buildup of problems in, in the economy. And, and that's that's what Austrian business cycle theory is is really all about is that there there's an accumulation of of errors. And in fact, Rothbard called it a cluster of errors. Um, and so we we misallocate capital and we start producing the wrong sorts of things that take way too long. Um, and so there's like this there's this accumulation. There's this buildup, and it takes it takes time for things. Uh, or for for people to figure it out, it takes it takes time for us to realize those errors, and of course, additional government interventions, as you just mentioned, uh, just they just kick the can down the road. It just it just delays the point in time in which entrepreneurs start to realize, hey, I can't I can't finish this project because because what it does is it it pushes down the cost of credit, it uh, it pushes up profits. People have more money to spend if you have if you have a bunch of money printing. 
Um, and so it just sort of papers over the the fundamental problems in the economy, which which, like you said, when you're looking at those uh, manufacturing uh, measures, like you, you we're like we're starting to see some of those problems are 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 bubbling up. They're they're starting to be realized. Um, I mean, only time will tell like how much how much time it will take for like the, the economy in general, entrepreneurs in general, investors in general to, to realize this. But it, it, since you asked my my opinion, I do think that that's going to happen sometime in 24. I think the ability to kick the can down the road uh, has has come to a point where they, they can't do that anymore. So I think they've I, at some like you cannot ignore economic reality for forever. You can't indefinitely kick down, kick the can down the road. So I, I think I think at some point this year, uh, maybe spring or summer, I think that this realization is going to happen. And of course, of course, the government is going to respond the same way that it always does. They'll they'll try they'll boost the money supply, uh, a bunch of new interventions, a bunch of new bank regulations, uh, new powers for the Fed. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see a, a central bank digital currency uh, being proposed and put in place like within a year, uh, because I think. I think the sort of crisis that we're lining up for is the same sort of crisis that uh, resulted in Nixon going off the Bretton Woods system, in FDR going off the gold standard. Uh, so, so I think there's at, we're coming to the point now where the only way for the government government to wiggle its way out of the problem is to do just like a total redefinition of what the dollar is, because uh, that's what they did in those other instances. So. So, yeah, I can't even remember what the original question was, but that's what I think. <laughs> you answered the question. The, uh, I, I only have one final question then is it goes back to the Krugman issue is, well, the Fed now they can they can push down interest rates. And why are we even worried about inflation anymore? Because it's solved, as you noted, and Krugman's desperate to define the problem as solved. And now we can go back to monetary easing and, and get back on track. Uh, but you note in one of your recent articles that Krugman's uh, he's basing a lot of this on this survey data about inflation expectations and mm -hmm. inflation expectations are an important issue. And in extremis, they, they can actually drive inflation in the sense of everybody now accepts that the currency is worthless. So they just spend it as fast as they can all the time. And that could actually increase price inflation. Um, that's a special case. But basically, Krugman's trying to tell us that, okay, well, this one survey I like says that uh, inflation's going down. So I guess it's going down and we can declare victory now. Is that is that a wise position? Should we believe him on that? Yeah, th this is a pattern for Krugman lately. So since he's he's desperate to declare victory, He's desperate to say that we've achieved the soft landing so that when a recession does come, he's got this exit route. He's got this this escape hatch. Um, and, and one of the measures that he's looked at, oh, by the way, so he's looked at uh, like the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, and, and he's trying to make this claim that it's just angry Republicans who are biasing the the uh, the survey results. And, and since uh, there's a Democrat in the White House, that means that all the Republicans are just going to say the economy's bad. I hate everything. Um, and so that's that's Krugman's line. And so, of course, his solution is, well, let's just let's just exclude, let's just shove off all of the Republicans in the survey and only look at Democrats. Uh, and so uh, one, one thing that I looked at is that there was a, a separate uh, survey that was looking at independence. And like, you wouldn't think that independence would follow the same sort of 
bias that Krugman is blaming on the Republicans, but it's telling the same story. So in, independents in this survey sample were saying the same thing. Like they, they think the economy is, is not doing well, or at least they have some questions about uh, the future of the economy. Uh, another, like you mentioned, another measure that he's looking at to help him tell this story is uh, the Atlanta Fed uh, Business Inflation Expectation Survey. And and it was it was interesting when I was looking at it, I was like all of the all of the data points on the survey where they're calculating the average inflation expectation, it's like right around two percent. It's like even in in the graph that uh, Krugman uh, posts in his article at the New York Times, it's like it just hovers right around two percent. And then uh, there's like a small spike; it gets almost up to four percent in uh, in 2022. Uh, but like that. That just it didn't seem right to me. It seems like if they're polling uh, business executives, it seems like they would they would see that maybe there is like more inflation coming than than what this survey uh, result indicates. And so when I was looking at the way the survey is administered, they they it's a multiple choice question. Um, or or they they give a few different categories of what's the what's the likelihood that. Uh, uh, inflation will be less than one percent. So, like, what's your expectation of of deflation? And then they've got some other intervals there, all the way up to five uh, percent. And then at, at the very top of the list, they have what's your expectation that inflation will be greater than five percent? So, so if anybody has any expectation that inflation will be greater than five percent, it still gets coded as five percent. So, some business executive could have accurately predicted that inflation would get up, like if you're looking at the uh, producer price index, it, it got to over 20%. Uh, so like if some executive accurately foresaw that, it would still get coded as 5% in the survey. <clears throat> and that's why all of the all of the data points where they're calculating the average, it just hovers right around 2% and it got a little bit over 3% uh, in 2022. And so like if you, like you can't use that as, as an accurate uh, measure of true inflation expectations because it's based on this, in my opinion, a, a really bad survey question that's asking people to assign a likelihood to these buckets of inflation expectations. And and the way that it's constructed, it's artificially constrained to, to hover right around 2%, which which tells you why Krugman likes it. like Because Krugman wants to be able to say, Hey, we inflation expectations have come down to two percent. Hey, look at this measure from the Atlanta Fed Business Inflation Expectation Survey. See, look, I'm right. <laughs> like we've achieved the soft landing. Where not only is inflation based on this uh, this uh, measure of price inflation that takes out food and energy and shelter and used cars, not only is that down to two percent, <laughs> but also uh, inflation expectations are down to two percent. So you can tell he's being very selective in the data that he wants to present, and it, and it's all just to to tell his story so that he's so that he's always right. Well, I think the moral of the story of this episode is if you want to learn more, if you're a beginner learning about Austrian business psychotheory, you should, of course, read Mises.org. You should read Jonathan Newman. However, oh, and by the way, you should read Human Action. Uh, <laughs> once you reach the advanced level, the, the goal will be to get to Human Action level. And we have a Human Action conference coming up in May, May 16th through 18th. So uh, get online and sign up for that if you're interested in uh, Mises, in just the depth of his knowledge about how the economy works. It's not all about Austrian business psychotheory, of course. There's a lot of other topics there. Um, but uh, check it out. That's uh, we, If you're interested in any of our senior level economists, most of them are going to be there. 
so you'll get to be in the room with them here at our Auburn campus if you're interested. And Ryan, we've got a special contest for Radio Rothbard listeners. If you go to Mises.org, Mises.org slash RR Raffle, it's a double R Raffle, uh, we are giving away a free admission to the conference for a very special Radio Rothbard listener. So I hope our wow, fans a, will check that deal. out. Oh, wow. Okay. Very good. Uh, and uh, But if you're just a beginner, the first step is read Babylon B, this article about Austrian <laughs> business cycle theory. And then maybe also you could watch this music video uh, starring Keynes and Hayek that, that will link. That'll take you nine minutes, five to nine minutes, if I remember correctly. Uh, but then, yeah, check out Mises Daily if you're not. I know a lot of our listeners, actually, they're not regular. They don't haunt Mises.org regularly. They get our they get our episodes from the various platforms that we post this podcast on. Um, but if this is a topic, you definitely should come to the site and check out some uh, some of the written material on the business cycle theory. That'll help you out quite a bit. But uh, thank you, Tho. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for joining me today. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Radio Rothbard, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.